You're listening to another episode of the Young Investors Podcast, so sit back and relax as myself, Brandon, and my buddy Hamish discuss the latest in the world of finance and stock market investing. Now, a quick reminder before we get into the podcast is that nothing in this podcast should be taken on as personal financial advice. If you're ever unsure about your finances or investing and you need some help, make sure you reach out to a qualified financial advisor. But with all that said, let's get into another episode of the Young Investors Podcast. All right, guys, welcome back in. Mm-hmm. Hey, Amish, how you doing? I'm doing well. Are you back in, Recovering. Uh, back in Canberra? Yeah, back in Canberra. Recovering after a big episode last week. It was a that big was episode. good fun though. Yeah. It was good fun. It's it's always so good. We always say this the week after. We wish we could do that every single week. I know. Yeah. It would be good. It's always so much fun. It's yeah. just so much more casual. If you haven't seen that episode, there's also a video component to that episode. Um, so go check it out on YouTube if you're interested. Um, really good mm. episode. We went for about an hour and a half, I think, or close to an hour and a half. Yeah, close to it. Yeah. No, it was a great episode. Um, and we thought that there wasn't much going on that week. And then we just... <laughs> Yeah, that's the thing. We gotta we gotta meet up more often. Yeah. Anyway, we're back to uh, you being down in Melbourne. I'm up in Canberra, mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm consistently battling the one second delay between us, yeah. which always makes us cut each other off. <laughs> but uh, yeah, hey, you totally jinxed yourself last week, didn't you? I totally know. jinxed yourself. Yeah. You're using Texas Roadhouse as an example and talking about how great it is. And then look at what you get shot down with. Yeah. Ouch. No, we got some sad news to talk about today in terms of Texas Roadhouse. Yeah. Um, also talking about uh, quite a bit of news with Tesla um, and Bitcoin. And we've also got a couple of other uh, stories as well. Trump, <laughs> he, he never <laughs> fails to, to get some time in the media, in the spotlight. And then we've got lots of Q&A questions too. So... Uh, with that said, should we get uh, should we get stuck into it? Yeah. So today's episode is sponsored by ShareSite, and ShareSite is an application you can use to track the performance of your stock portfolio, and it will allow you to track all of the different types of gains you experience as an investor. So capital gains, dividends. If you have dividend reinvestment plans, then it will do all of those calculations for you. Uh, currency gains. If you're buying shares internationally or you hold foreign currencies. And then the main reason why I've personally been using it over the past three or four years now is when it comes to tax time. So ShareSite will generate up to 10 different reports that can be used at tax time to easily work out things such as your capital gains, dividend income, and more. And at the moment, you can try ShareSite for free by heading over to sharesite.com forward slash young investors. That's site spelled S-I-G-H-T, sharesite.com forward slash young investors. So you can use that link to sign up to a free plan, but you can also use that link to sign up to a paid plan if you want. And at the moment, if you use that link, you can get four months free on a yearly subscription. Mm. So go check it out if you're interested. Now, I, I don't want to make light of a sad story. No. But the the way that it happened last week was actually quite ridiculous. Just completely unbelievable. Because I can't remember what you were talking about. We talked about Texas Roadhouse last week, didn't we? At some stage during the podcast. Yeah. As, I think you gave it as an example or something. Yeah. I used Texas um, Roadhouse as an example probably two or three times. I reckon if you added up the amount of time I spoke about Texas Roadhouse in last week's podcast, it probably would have been over 10 minutes, I reckon. Right. Between, okay. so, yeah. Yeah, so, so you start talking Texas Roadhouse and then we finish the podcast. It's like an hour and a half. It goes for an hour and a half. Mm. We finally finish it. We do all the file transfers. We download everything. We get everything done and dusted. We're just about to leave, right? Yeah. And I'm like, all right, I'll just go to the bathroom. 
go to the bathroom, come back. I walk back in and you're standing right at the door with this most shocked look on your face. (laughs) You look at me and you go, dude, you have no idea what just happened. The CEO of Texas Roadhouse just died. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Terribly sad. It's, uh, yeah, I know. I was just in complete shock. I, I get email notifications for all of the press releases and and SEC filings that get filed for any of the companies in my portfolio. And I just got an email and I was like, because what happened was earlier in the week, um, the CEO sold a significant amount of stock. So when I saw this email come up, I was, I just thought, oh, is he selling even more stock or has he bought some of it back? But uh, yeah, I did not expect to to see that. Um, It certainly was not something that people were aware of. Um, I mean, often if, when someone passes away, there's kind of a, a lead up to it or, or people are anticipating it, whether it's because of old age or some kind of illness or something that's been announced. But this was a complete blindside. Um, but uh, yeah, it was uh, very sad. At the time, they actually didn't release any details about his death, which was another thing that um, it seemed, yeah. was a little bit strange and and uh, I kind of made me feel as though there was there was something more to it. Um, it seemed suspicious, didn't it? Yeah. And With it, all of the stock being sold and then the no details a week later he dies. It's like, whoa, what's going on here? Yeah, I think initially I probably thought that he was suffered some kind of um, illness that came on quite quickly, but not so quickly that he had time to sell stock during the week leading up to his death. But we now actually know what happened. So originally he contracted COVID um, and he was one of the unfortunate people who from COVID um, actually had some quite severe symptoms or after effects from it. Um, And one of the things that one of the impacts was that he had tinnitus, which is basically ringing in the ears. um, And uh, the family released a statement and said that it was really, really severe. And then uh, even more shocking uh, because of that, those ongoing symptoms he actually took his own life last week wow so holy smokes um, that's sad yeah very very sad and um yeah i mean yeah i I, in the same pages as what you were saying not to make light of that at all it's obviously a terrible thing but it was just such a strange way that it happened that we were talking about the business so much oh man and then that that happened but uh yeah very very sad to to hear because of course he not only was the ceo of texas roadhouse but the founder of the company um and has been running the company ever since it was founded in 1994 so that's obviously yeah. um, terribly sad, and we do have a little bit more information now about what's gonna the succession plan and what what's going what what's sort of happening for Texas Roadhouse going on here in the future. So, mm. um, the president uh, of Texas Roadhouse, Jerry Morgan, has now been elected as the CEO. So. Uh, Jerry has been at uh, Texas Roadhouse for 24 years. So since 1997, um, just three years after the company was founded. So he's been at the company from the very beginning, basically. Um, he was actually right. the managing partner of the first restaurant in Texas. Um, so wow. he's been there from the very early on. He yeah. also has 35 years of uh, restaurant uh, management experience. So um, he's not new to the company. It's not some outsider that's coming in. Um uh, he he's clearly been at the company for a very long time. So that's a good thing for, for shareholders. Mm. Yeah. Although it thrusts you into quite a, uh, quite a, dilemma. an annoying, quite, yeah, quite a dilemma because I mean, 
and I'm sure a lot of Texas Roadhouse shareholders are sitting in a similar boat, is that one of the main reasons that they might be invested in Texas Roadhouse is because of um, of the old CEO and all yeah. of the you know the fantastic performance that he has led the company through because um, he was the founder and you know you always you always like when a company is 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 still run by its founder because it's like the company's their baby they they mm. really care I mean no one cares more about the company than the person that started it right yeah uh, it's like nobody cares more I know that. Elon Musk didn't start Tesla, but nobody cares more about Tesla than than Elon Musk, right? Mm. So, there, and there's certainly a big part of that, and, and probably because of there's so much passion, and it, and it was his baby. There, you know, that that's pr- in a lot of cases probably what's led to such success in the business. Yeah, um, and and such smart and and diligent management of of all the capital, and you know that. Texas Roadhouse always seems to have a very smart, uh, like a good return investor capital, smart uh, money management. You know, they're not wasting their money. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it, it thrusts you and a lot of shareholders into a very awkward situation where there's, you know, uh, now it's something that you were, you know, was such a big part of why you invested is now gone. Yeah, I mean, founder having a founder running the company is one of my probably top three or top four or top five things that I'm looking for it. in a company. In fact, mm. every single investment I've made over the past three years has been in a company where either the founder is still running the company today or they were at least at the time when I made that investment. Right. So I actually haven't invested significantly into a company that is not run by the founder. <laughs> so that right. kind of gives you an idea of, of how important it is to me. But I guess... The second closest thing, because founder-run companies are not overly common, um, particularly when we're looking for founder-run companies that have 10, 20 years of track record. Um, A lot of the time, the founder leaves after that time. But the second best thing, in my view, is someone who has been at the company for an extremely long period of time. Um, So even though I guess like Elon Musk, for example, didn't found um, uh, Tesla, he purchased the company and has been there for an extremely long period of time running that company. Yeah. So in that way, yeah. um, he, he's, it's kind of like the, the next best thing to having a founder run company, someone who created it from scratch. So I'm actually quite happy with how the, the Texas Roadhouse management team looks. Obviously I'm, I'm deeply saddened that the founder is no longer there, but um, they have three other executives, in, including Jerry Morgan, and all of them have been at Texas Roadhouse for over 20 years. So um, the entire there's nobody in the management team that is like new uh, at Texas yeah. Roadhouse. And, and that's something that um, I'm very happy to see. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm sure they'll, they'll do quite a good job and we'll just have to see, I guess, how, how their business yeah. performs in the future. Yeah, no, I, th- I think they're in they're in safe hands. Texas Roadhouse shareholders seem to be in safe hands because you're right. You, you, that it's not like they've gone out and said, "Look, we we need to bring in a new CEO and gone on a hiring spree and have <laughs> tried to poach a CEO from somewhere else." Yeah, and I like to see that as well. Is when they they elevate people that have that are kind of sitting below the CEO as opposed to just trying to fish a high profile CEO from a different business. Yeah. Um, the, uh, all right. I think, sorry, just, what were you going to say? Oh, just one other thing on that topic. The, the market also didn't really react to 
the the news as well. The stock was down six percent this week, but immediately after it happened, the day after, the stock was down 0.5 percent or something. So clearly, the market thinks that the the remaining management team is also very capable of continuing to True. run the business. And of course, management is a very significant part of analysis, but it's not the be all and end all, right? At it's the end of everything. the day, you have a huge network of employees and restaurants and a brand that's been built over uh, however long the company's been run for. And those yeah. things have an impact, of course, as well. Yeah. Uh, very sad news, but hopefully uh, Texas Roadhouse continues to succeed to mm. kind of honor the legacy that, uh, that uh, what was his name? Kent Taylor, a Wayne Kent, Kent Taylor. Taylor. Right, that he kind of built up over time. Uh, all right, let's move on to this next news story. Mm. Guess what, Hamish? What? You can now buy your Tesla with that fat stack of Bitcoin that you've got oh, sitting in your in your wallet. Fantastic. I was wondering when I was going to get to use that. Like, where, where? <laughs> I've just got uh, 100K, it's pretty funny. 100K in Bitcoin just. Yeah. Hamish, it's like uh, this whole time you've just been just I'm trashing Bitcoin yeah. and you're actually all in. I'm all in on Bitcoin. <laughs> We'd certainly be very rich. Um, <laughs> anyway, so two days ago, Tesla updated their design studio on their website to mm. allow payment in, you guessed it, Bitcoin. This is pretty Whoa. crazy. Um, this is like the, the first real big kind of transaction that I've seen that can be done with, with Bitcoin. Um, so and Elon, of course, took to Twitter to kind of uh, discuss it. He did say, you know, the big headline that you can now pay for your Tesla with Bitcoin. But he said, Bitcoin, this is what I found interesting. Bitcoin paid to Tesla will be retained as Bitcoin, not converted to fiat currency. Mm. So that's something that I found, I don't know. I don't know about that. Mm. But then again, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, hang on. How many people are actually going to end up buying a Tesla with Bitcoin? I can't imagine it would be that many people. That's a good um, point. Yeah, you, you couldn't imagine that it would be a huge amount of people. But yeah, I mean, businesses worry about currency exchange between like the US and Australian dollar or the US oh, and I the know. euro. Think about the currency. Oh, yeah. So, we were profitable in the uh, fourth quarter. However, due to currency fluctuations between Bitcoin and, and uh, the US dollar, <laughs> and US we are bankrupt. <laughs> we've, we've, <laughs> we're out of business. No, but it, it is kind of, uh, it's, it's going to throw their, uh, their earnings off in, in some way, especially if there's a big drop even though maybe it'll be a very small amount of their uh their their sales like you said mm. if there was a big drop you would think even a small percentage of sales could have a a, a noticeable impact but yeah i guess it really yeah. just depends we'll have to see how that how that plays out yeah like yeah the sample size has got to be small because yeah. first of all it's got to be people with enough Bitcoin because usually people when I talk to them, they're like, oh, yeah, I own some Bitcoin. It's like, oh, how much do you own? Oh, I own like a hundred bucks worth of Bitcoin. You know, it's <laughs> just <one>. like some, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like a, it's like a gamble kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so, I think for, first of all, there needs to be people that have enough Bitcoin to actually be able to buy a Tesla. Hmm. And then out of that small sample size, it's got to be people that actually want to buy a Tesla with their Bitcoin. So, um yeah, I, have, I just have to think that it's going to be very, very small sample size. Yeah, there's there's really not that many people who hold, I would imagine at least, there's not that many people with a significant amount of Bitcoin that are looking to buy things with it currently. Mm. Um, yeah. I would imagine most are looking to, to hold on to their Bitcoin as long as possible. Mm. Yeah. But did you see the cheapest Tesla, which quite, this is ridiculous to me, 
the cheapest Tesla now costs less than one Bitcoin. So wow. to get the cheapest Tesla that you can buy right now, it's 0.57 Bitcoin. That's for the standard <laughs> base level Model 3. And the most expensive Tesla is only three Bitcoin. <laughs> is it Bitcoin or Bitcoins? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, who that knows? is crazy though. I just remember a story about someone who bought a pizza with three Bitcoin or something like that. Oh, what? Yeah. Jeez. And now they could have bought the most expensive Tesla if they had just held that Bitcoin. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. Wow. That's, that is insane. But he, this is something that I had no idea about. Um, something that caught my attention uh, on CNBC hmm. is that there's actually potentially a problem which might mean that buying, you know, something like a Tesla with your Bitcoin would actually be uh, less common than even we're thinking right now. We're, even now we're thinking it's probably going to be quite uncommon. Mm. So, I'll just read you what's what was written in the CNBC article. Um, so, the IRS treats Bitcoin and other cryptocurrency as property, which means that when it's disposed of, including when it's used to purchase goods or services, it's a taxable event. Uh, so, if you were to use Bitcoin that you've held for one year or less, any increase between its value when you bought it and when you use it to make a purchase is considered short-term gain mm. and would be taxed at ordinary income tax rates, which range from 10% to 37%, depending on your total income. So, this taxable right. event might actually mean that the car itself, if you wanted to buy the car with Bitcoin, it might actually make it quite substantially more expensive than if you just paid the equivalent amount of cash. Yeah. Um, so, it says here, be aware that depending on your other income and the amount of the short-term gain, you could be pushed into a higher tax bracket. For example, if you had $40,000 in taxable income without the Bitcoin transaction, the highest rate you'd pay on that would be 12%. If you were to add a Bitcoin gain of $10,000, it would push you into the next tax bracket, which comes with a marginal rate of 22% for income above $40,525. So, it seems like it's not quite as simple as the cheapest Tesla costs 0.57 Bitcoin, so I'm going to buy it. And it might actually become quite complicated when you buy the Tesla with your Bitcoin because that is then triggers a capital gain mm. event on the Bitcoin, which might screw you over when it comes to your tax. Wow. That is actually kind of interesting because then there is really no benefit. If you have Bitcoin, there's no benefit to just buying the Tesla in Bitcoin. You would mm. have the same outcome if you sold the Bitcoin, got US dollars and then and paid, it. had had the capital gain event through that sale and then buying it. It would be exactly yeah. the same. Yeah, that's interesting. I never, I actually didn't think about that. Um, mm. Wow. So I had no idea. Yeah, I did not know that Bitcoin was treated that way in the US. And I, to be honest, I don't even know how Bitcoin's treated here in Australia. Um, but yeah, very, very strange. Yeah. Um, if it wasn't yeah, just, that way, there would be a significant uh, advantage to, to buying Bitcoin, especially if you've held it for a long time because uh, you wouldn't have to pay capital gains when you used it to transact. Never yeah. actually thought yeah. about it in that way. But yeah, yeah. very interesting. So I, and I guess that rule in general probably 
restricts the use case of Bitcoin as an actual currency. You know how mm. people are like, oh, it's the future of currency. We're going to be, you know, as you were saying before, that guy that bought a pizza with Bitcoin. You yeah. know, we're going to go to the shops and pay in Bitcoin. Well, hang on. If this is now considered a taxable event when we dispose of the Bitcoin, and for a lot of people, they would have held it for like very short term. So, they probably would, would have copped some short term capital gains, which can be quite severe. So, mm. maybe it, that's another uh, hurdle, I suppose, that cryptocurrency has to overcome if it wants to be a, a player in currency. But in all honesty, it doesn't sound like it, it wants to be a player in currency. It just wants to be a player as a crypto asset, kind of like a gold, yeah. like a financial asset, um, not not so much a currency. But uh, yeah, I thought I'd chuck that in. Actually, speaking of Tesla, did you see Kathy Wood's new <laughs> Tesla share price target? I did. I did see this. Yeah. <laughs> $3,000 per share by 2025. This is ridiculous. Wow. Representing a potential upside of 359% from Friday's close and a market valuation of about $3 trillion. Um, yeah, that's that's pretty crazy. And th- it's kind of crazy. ARK Invest, they've just got this crazy reputation now because they've just had a stellar last year, mainly on the back of Tesla. But they were the ones, you know how when share prices are, you know, say a share price is a hundred bucks, most analysts are going to be like, oh, look, we think the price target's $105 or $110. Um, You know how it's like as the share price moves, then they're expectations for share price also move. Yeah. <laughs> but Kathy Wood wasn't like that. She was basically like, look, we see Tesla sitting here at $400 per share pre-split and we think pre-split is going to go to like $4,000, $5,000 per share. And she was actually bloody right. She went out and she was like, we think this is going to happen. And it was a crazy thing to happen. And then it actually happened. <laughs> so she's now like this superstar. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll see what what happens. She now thinks after the split, uh, after the five to one split, she thinks Tesla can hit three thousand by twenty twenty five, and she says that's coming off the back of uh, expectations of the robo taxi service coming into uh, coming into coming to fruition. I suppose, right? Yeah, uh, which which no doubt, if they do that and if it's successful, has a has a big potential to make a lot of money for Tesla. Um, but five years uh, time frame. Yeah, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> I, don't know. I, just, I just think it's ridiculous how often these uh, these funds upgrade their their price targets, mm. like and and how ridiculous some of them can be. I think Sven Carlin did a really good video breaking down this expectation and what it would actually mean for the business in terms of growth, and then right. also provided. Did he do it for Tesla? He did, and he oh, okay. uh, also provided some of his kind of modeling and and what he thinks is kind of more realistic and. It's kind of just, you, you just have to watch the video. It's right. just what is required Worlds for apart. Tesla to achieve, <laughs> to get to a $3 trillion market cap or a 3000 per share price by mm. 2025 is just off the charts insane. Yeah. Um, so I yeah. don't know whether, I, I don't know whether they're, they've done this increase because they actually think that something has fundamentally changed for the better about Tesla or whether it's because there's been a significant draw out of funds from the ARK portfolio and they're trying to get people to come back in. Um, but I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Who Guess knows? we'll just see what happens. 
Who knows? Actually, one other story I just had quickly, which I'll just chuck in here because we we're kind of talking about Bitcoin just before with Tesla. Um, did you see this during the week? Fidelity Investments is preparing to launch its own Bitcoin fund as the oh. investment giant works to cement its clout in the market for digital assets and virtual currency. FD Funds Management, a subsidiary of Fidelity, said on Wednesday that it plans to provide financial backing for an exchange-traded fund mm. called the Wise Origin Bitcoin Trust. The firm filed uh, a Form S-1 with the Securities and Exchange Commission, a preliminary registration statement for the fund. Fidelity confirmed that it filed a prospectus to sponsor a Bitcoin ETF, but said it could not offer further comment because of the preliminary nature of the filing. Right. So, there you go. I mean... We 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 both don't particularly like Bitcoin, but I mean, at this stage, seeing funds like Fidelity launching Bitcoin ETFs, I just have to. I don't know. I have to think that Bitcoin is here to stay. I don't. I just don't think it's going away now. That just everybody seems to be getting in on it. I feel like more companies will just get in on it. Um, but it also kind of reminds me. Did you you remember the the Daily Journal? Uh, Q&A that happened recently with Charlie Munger. Yes. Where it was like, the problem is the investment banking profession will sell shit as long as shit can be sold. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing, right? These these new funds and SPACs and all of these different instruments that people can use to invest, they just come out based on what the demand is from the public. They're not necessarily True. good investments. The fund is just following, okay, so a lot of people are into Bitcoin at the moment or a lot of people are into these uh, SPACs. Can we, can we figure out how we can do more of these and and increase our fees on these and yeah because they can then money. sell that they can sell it as a product yeah, yeah. it's uh yeah, I mean, it's just another one of those things. But yeah, I would imagine if if we start to see more ETF uh, Bitcoin funds, that that would probably help drive, <laughs> at least in the short term, the the price yeah. of Bitcoin up. But um, yeah, I don't I don't mm. know I don't know what to expect with Bitcoin. There's a lot of eyeballs on it, and that. It has been yeah. a good thing recently as it's grown in popularity, but uh, I, I still have to believe that that could shift just as quickly. Um, yeah. Considering its short history. Uh, it has been around mm. for quite a while now, but uh, I think people could still shift onto something else quite rapidly and people should expect yeah. that or be prepared for that. Yeah, be prepared for it. Yeah. Yeah, true. Anyway, yeah, that's all I had to say on that story. I just found mm. it interesting. It kind of just popped up. Um, what else you got to talk about? Yeah, let's talk about this Trump story because... Uh, yeah, what the heck? Trump, what the heck? Obviously, Trump's been out of the news for far too long. It's it, we've, yeah. we've been waiting. We've been... <laughs> not really, but... Uh, <laughs> had to clarify. We've... Uh, <laughs> We've got some news. So, of course, uh, some of you may remember that uh, towards the end, or was it just after he was uh, no longer president? I can't remember exactly when it was, but Trump was banned from uh, Facebook and Twitter after the Capitol building riot. So, it must have been after he was... Uh he, he, he was no longer president, um, but he was banned from those social medias for inciting violence on the platform and he's banned indefinitely. So, uh, of course, Trump needs to speak somewhere. Um, he can't just go away. So, uh, <laughs> he's actually launching his own social media platform. Oh, is he? <laughs> yeah. So, I just saw this this morning and this uh, caught me by surprise, but apparently one of his senior advisors spoke to Fox News on Sunday and uh, the senior advisor said this, uh, Trump will re-enter the social media space with a new platform of his own that would be, and quote, 
completely re- redefine the game. Yeah, of course he said that, didn't so, he? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Tremendous. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, so he's uh, he's launching his own social media platform. I'm actually, it, it's apparently expected to come out in two to three months. Honestly, I'm kind of excited. I like when stuff like this happens. <laughs> I kind of want to see. Uh, I don't know if it's going to be any good. It's probably not going to be yeah. good. But you, you'd have to be lying if you said you weren't excited for this to see what this looks like. <laughs> to see what sort of crap Trump.com. <laughs> Trump.com. No, it's, you've heard of Clubhouse. This is going to be Trump House <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. Oh, man. Well, let's see. I mean, if anything, if his previous business ventures are anything to go by, you can't imagine this. <laughs> this one's going to be <laughs> this, great. This one's <laughs> going to be particularly, uh, particularly fantastic. Oh dear. It's kind of funny because you you hear like the, the quotes, the classic Trump quotes, like this is going to completely redefine the game. It's like, man, you were saying that about your Atlantic City casino back in the day. <laughs> it's like that building literally just got demolished. I mean, uh, <laughs> he's the person that thinks that, you know, uh, running a, what is it, Boeing like 737 as your private jet is like a great financial <laughs> strategy. <laughs> it's like... Oh dear. It's it's kind of remarkable like how I just find it funny how like he's Trump's like a really bad business person. Like he he really is not successful in the realm of business. But he's just been able to convince so many people that he is. Uh, it's just been it's been quite staggering, to be perfectly honest. I, like, I remember watching a couple of documentaries on his failed business ventures. I'm mm. like, how do people believe that this guy's actually like good at business, runs successful companies? It's just not. It's just not true. But um, mm. anyway, that's my Trump rant. It will be very interesting to see how successful this uh, Trump social media platform will be. <laughs> I can't imagine it lasting more than. I don't know, six months, to be honest. Nah, this is here to stay. YouTube, YouTube's gone. This is going to be YouTube, where- <laughs> watch out. Facebook, watch out. Yeah, watch Twitter, out, Twitter, watch out. I comes. wonder what it'll be called. Probably be called, well, it's following typical naming convention. It'll probably be called Trump something. Yeah. I w- oh, certainly Trump's in the name of this. It has to be in the name. He cu- he. There's. I reckon there's no way he could launch a business without including the word Trump. Mm. <laughs> there's no way he could call it something else other than his own name. He just likes the sound of his name way too much. <laughs> <laughs> no, so that's coming out two to three months. We'll uh, we'll give we'll you an update up. on that in uh, well in two to three months, whenever that is, July. We'll give you an update in two to three months. <laughs> we'll be back. Uh, I will not forget. I uh, probably will forget, but. Hopefully it's in the news so that uh, we can we can talk about it because uh, it's going to be funny. Here's the thing: is I reckon that a lot of news place news outlets will probably you know put predictions that million like tens of millions of people will sign up to his platform because of his huge following. But to be honest, I think like obviously compared to other social media platforms, this is going to be shit. Like it's going to be terrible <laughs> because it simply like even if Trump threw everything he had at it, he just simply wouldn't have the funding to be able to build a a good social media platform that rivals some of the others. Yeah, well, but I, I mean, feel like a, sorry. Yeah, you go. All I was going to say was, I mean, even if you 
do create something that rivals Facebook and it's just as good. The problem is the the networking effect that yeah, why, exactly. why would you leave to be in a smaller network? Even yes. if it's even if it's better, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> the, the 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 power of a networking effect whereby even if Facebook is not, you know, the greatest platform in the world, the fact that you can access all of your friends, you can communicate with anyone you wanted to because you know they yeah. all have a Facebook account, that has power. And uh, absolutely, yeah. But I, I agree with you. I don't think it's gonna even chalk up to that's, Facebook. That's what I was gonna say. Is with uh, like I feel like a lot of people think, oh, you know, Trump he had seventy something million people vote for him in the uh, in the election. It's gonna be millions and millions and millions of users. It's gonna be so popular. Look, Trump's got such a strong following. You see it in the news all the time. I actually feel like, you know. The, the the amount of people that will, like you say, want to sign up to a different social media platform and actually use that social media platform on the regular are only going to be like the diehard Trump fans, the ones that literally will punch a hole in the Capitol building wall kind of thing. And to be honest, while he still, while he got 70 something million votes, I mean, that's doesn't mean there's 70 million crazy fanatic Trump supporters. I couldn't imagine, to be honest, this platform getting more than uh, like maybe one or two million signups, if that, uh, because of what you say, it's just like the, the like the, the hardest of hardcore Trump supporters would sign up. But beyond that, people are just going to keep using the massive networks that they're already in, the Facebooks, the, I was going to say Twitter, but Twitter's not really a, a massive network. Yeah. Um, you know, Instagram, Snapchat, those kind of pre-established ones. I just can't, I can't see him innovating and I can't see him making a platform that rivals anything, uh, anything that we don't, we, we've already got kind of thing. Yeah. Anyway. I mean, if he makes a big launch of it and it's all over the news, they'll probably get a lot of signups immediately. Mm-hmm. A lot of people just checking it out, curious. I know I'll be in there <laughs> yeah. just to check it out. Um, and then Trump will come out and say, this is how many users we signed up on the first day. And it'll be like, oh, wow, that's amazing. That's, and yeah. then no one will use it anymore. Yeah. It'll Same go. thing happened with his casinos. <laughs> he made a big, big event out of the launches and like heaps and heaps of people came. And, you know, a couple months later, like no one was turning up to the casinos. <laughs> uh, we shall see. Anyway, um, we got anything else to talk about today? Um, where could we go? I do have a yeah. little bit. I have one new story on uh, on uh, interest rates and, and banks oh, in yeah. Australia. This is a bit of a nothing story, not particularly interesting, but I, I right. uh, but uh, it was in the news. So, um, Commonwealth Bank uh, hiked their interest rates, or oh, one interest rate at least, for the first time in a really long time. So, um, ComBank increased the interest rate on their four-year fixed rate uh, from 1.99% to 2.19%, so very small increase. Um, mm. But at the same time, they actually lowered their one and two-year fixed rates. Um, and why that's interesting, the fact that they continue to lower their short-term rates, but then actually increased a four-year rate is because it actually indicates that the bank believes that the official cash rate will begin rising in 2024. Right, um, Okay. Because, of course, they would want their longer-term rates to be in line with where the longer-term official rate will be. And the official yeah. rate, of course, is the one that comes out of the Reserve Bank of Australia. And that's the rate at which the banks can borrow from the Reserve Bank. So, um, the fact that ComBank has, even though it's a modest increase, the fact that they've increased that four-year rate for the first time 
actually indicates they believe that the interest rates overall, the official interest rates will start to rise beginning in 2024. So um, that's pretty much all I had for that story. Not nothing crazy. Mm. Obviously, it's just their opinion. They don't have they don't have a, a crystal ball to to see what actually will happen. But mm. uh, interesting to see. That's uh, one of the banks is kind of changing their opinion on on long term interest rates for the first time in a while. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, and I mean, I'm sure there'd be, it wouldn't just be one person, there'd be teams of people that would be trying to analyze this and, and predict out. So, yeah, I mean, if you see the one, two-year fixed rates going down, but the four-year fixed rates going up, then yeah, it, it does kind of give you a sign, I guess, as to what they're thinking. Mm. Um, but yeah, whether that actually turns out to be the reality of the situation, we'll have to wait for four years to see. <laughs> <laughs> see you in uh, the but, year 2024. Uh, Young Investors Podcast number two. 200 and was it 350 or something like that (laughs) we'll we'll be back (laughs) um but yeah no that is very interesting i wonder if the other banks will follow suit we'll see yeah um what else can we talk about they're really like the main stories yeah that we got to talk about i did have one actually which just kind of caught my eye because it seemed quite strange um, that rent is no longer the number one financial burden for Australians, um, as suggested by a survey of 10,000 people. I should make that clear. (laughs) Um, But 10,000 people is is a pretty good pretty good number. Mm. Um, So, for years, Australia's housing affordability problem has been the main culprit for stretching personal and family budgets to the limit. No shit. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But rent and mortgages have been knocked off the number one money worry spot as household bills are now considered the biggest financial burden for Australians. So, there you go. Um, according to news.com.au, so yeah, um, take that <laughs> for what it's worth. Uh, according to news.com.au's latest cost of living survey, bills including energy, groceries, insurance, and school fees have overtaken housing as our greatest money drain. I find that interesting because I just wouldn't have imagined if I added all of my bills together that that would still come out to more than my rental costs. Yeah, I don't know. does that I, seem does that seem possible for you? For me, that just doesn't seem possible. No, definitely not. Rent is definitely the highest, my highest expense. One. Even if you combined everything else, maybe that's yeah. different. If you have a family, maybe um, maybe rent is is then not as large as as including food and electricity and water and all of those things combined. But mm. yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's very very weird. Um, there were some interesting stuff. Like more than ten thousand people responded to the survey. Seventy eight percent of them uh, said their number one household expense was bills, an eleven percent increase from the previous survey in twenty nineteen. So that's actually quite mm. a substantial jump. Uh, closely following bills in the list of top money worries in the survey were rent and mortgage costs at sixty four percent. So seventy eight percent of people said. Bills, 64% said rent, Mm. um, down from 66% in 2019, so very slight change. Um, And then groceries, 50% down from 54%. So, there you go. I've actually got Mm. the table. I don't know if you can see the chart down in the the Google Doc here. But, yeah, it's got combined bills, 78, rent, mortgage, 64. Then it's utilities, groceries, bills, uh, sorry, insurance bills. Public transport, very small, putting kids through school, very small, eating out, very small, 
you know. So there you go. I, I yeah, I, I honestly wouldn't have anticipated that that even combining your bills would be a bigger burden than your uh, your rent or your mortgage costs. But uh, I don't know. Like if if you guys listening out there would uh, agree that your bills combined would be more than your rent costs, then let us know over in the Google Doc. I'd be interested to see if if uh, if you guys think that way. And and if so, uh, why? What like what is it about the bills? Is it one particular bill which really hurts? Or yeah, I'd just be interested to hear um, if if we got some people out there that think that. Mm. Right. Um, there you go. Anyway, shall we uh, move on? Yeah. Q&A time? Yeah, let's jump into some Q&A. We've still got a Q&A. lot of questions. We uh, we asked for questions. Uh, I, I made a post on, on YouTube uh, before we did the live podcast or in-person right. podcast and we have a lot of questions from that that we'll probably never get to the end of. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, we'll, uh, All right. What, what ones should we start off with? Yeah. Um, maybe I'll, I'll ask this one to you. Sure. Um, have you guys looked at other asset classes if inflation rises? Oh, we answered you... this one last week. Did we? Oh. Yeah, we did. My bad. <laughs> we won't answer that question. If you want to hear the answer to that question, <laughs> go yeah, watch go, last week's Go podcast. to last week's thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did we answer this one? No, I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> How important is it to you guys to invest in a company that shows consistent growth in equity and earnings and a low debt level over many years in selecting companies to invest in? Uh, I see companies on our ASX market shooting the lights out or doing very well, uh, but have little to no earnings to show for it. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think all of those uh, aspects are important. I mean, to be honest, the companies where they seem to be doing really, really well, but they've got no earnings to show for it, they're just probably in this really uh, like high expansion period where you know anything they make, they just put it back into the business kind of thing. So at the end of the day, you're like, whoa, where's my money? Oh, wait, it's been reinvested. So sometimes that's not like too much to worry about if you're early in the game um, and they've got this massive... Because if they've got this massive market opportunity, they've got this massive total addressable market, nobody's a big player in that space, then you want that company to be like, all right, we're the first here. Instead of just, you know, petering along and paying, a, you know, something like a fat dividend to our shareholders, we want to take every single dollar that we make and just pump it back into growing the business. Um, so that we can take advantage and cement ourselves as the number one player in this massive total addressable market. Um, but how, from a from a shareholder point of view, I mean, of course, we like to see the growth in the equity. The equity is essentially what the shareholders own at the end of the day, and we like to see the growth in the earnings. We like to see low debt over many years. And and the reason that you know, for example, sometimes going on that last example, a company should maybe take on debt. It's not like the stupidest idea to take on debt. If they're trying to get to that dominant position and they can get to that dominant position where that having that position will massively increase cash flows in the future. Mm. I think just the way that we kind of think about it is that these are kind of like little areas which if they go wrong, they can go really wrong. So, we're kind of like, they're like safety checks for us as investors. So, we always like to look for low debt. Um, because we know that 
a lot of times companies with very high debt, something goes wrong and the debt catches up to them and then all of a sudden they go bust. Um, we like to see a growth in earnings because it means, you know, the competitive advantage is probably still there. They're continuing to grow. People are liking their products and services and so on. So it's kind of like that situation of there's not kind of one answer fits every situation, but I think the, the reason it's important for us to see, you know, yes, low debt, yes, growth in earnings, growth in cash flow, you know, growth in equity is because those can be the signs if they're not going well that something's not right with the business. Mm. Um, but hopefully that my example kind of shows that sometimes businesses can be doing different things for different reasons and sometimes it's not completely all the time it's bad kind of thing. Is that, does yeah. that even make like a little schmickle of sense? <laughs> no, no, that makes, that's a really good answer. It makes perfect sense. I okay. think for me, the, those things are really important because if you see those in a business, it reduces the uncertainty around that, whether that company will be thriving in the future. Those are some of the yeah. main indicators that you can use to, to, as whether a company is going to be doing well. That doesn't mean that businesses that don't have those things, or in other words, have high debt, unprofitable, declining equity or whatever it is, um, there can be businesses that do that, um, that have those characteristics and still end up becoming really successful businesses. It's just that the vast majority of companies in those situations do not go on to, to, to be really successful businesses. So mm. the companies you're seeing that are shooting the lights out, well, I mean, there's a couple of things at play here. One is people just speculating on, on early stage companies as well. Um, mm. But of course, there will be companies that are at very early stages um, that will go on to be very successful companies. But um, at that very early stage, for me, there's just a lot of uncertainty. Um, yeah. So I would prefer yeah. to wait a little bit for there to be a little bit more certainty. Um, and then, yeah, that's where I tend to look for those the characteristics, equity, earnings growing and low debt. Mm, yep. Yep, absolutely. All right. I'm going to ask this one to you, mm -hmm. Hamish. Hey guys, quick question. What do you guys say to a scenario where you like a business and you understand it and you thought it had a moat compared to other companies? However, their big five moat numbers aren't, you know, 10% or more um, over 10 years. Should I be very strict or should I compromise based on individual scenarios? Well, what do you think about that, Hamish? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think the, so there's a couple of things here. I think it depends on what stage the business is at because Phil Town's kind of core strategy, I guess, that he teaches in his books is look for businesses that have those five moat numbers consistently growing at 10% or more over time. And that is a really good indication of a competitive advantage. And that I think is true. However, there can be businesses where they're at a mature stage. So they've the industry just isn't offering 10% per year growth anymore, for example. Um, and in those cases, I think you can still identify a moat if as long as the growth in those numbers is consistent. So even if revenue growth is 5% per year, if it's consistently 5% per year, um, I view that as a good indication of, of the fact that the business does have an advantage. Um, and then it's kind of relative to how the industry is growing as well, because a business might be growing at 5% per year consistently and the industry growth might be 2% per year. And in that case, they're growing faster than the industry. So they're actually gaining market share, even though they're not growing at 10% per year. So that again would be another indication that a business has a distinct advantage. So I think you just kind of have to um, view the growth in the context of the industry 
and yeah. uh, just obviously if the business's numbers, or at least this is obvious to me, if the business's numbers are declining over time, that's a very good indication, especially over a long period of time, like five or 10 years, yeah. then that's a good indication that they don't have some kind of advantage. Mm. What do you think? The only Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. The only other thing I'd add to that is that, and I've said this on some, probably many podcasts in the past, you're never going to find a perfect company. I mean, these are kind of just like a set of guidelines which which makes make sure that we don't make massive mistakes. Um, for example, you might find, you know, over 10 years, the average growth in cash flow is like 15%. And then in the last year, cash flow, the growth is only like 2%. And that sends up a red flag and you're like, wait, what? And I think, and I have definitely said this before, it just comes back down to your understanding of the business. So, you you want to see those the consistent steady growth over time. But if something's happened, you want to just make sure you understand why. Why has it happened? Because you can still have a great business with a competitive advantage that's growing really well. And then something like COVID happens and then it kills their one-year cash flow result. And then you're like, oh, you know, being strict, I'm not going to buy that business. Who knows? You know, Phil Town told me not to. But it, it could be, I mean, you got to remember at the same time that for a lot of great businesses, it takes some big event to put them on sale. So, that event, if you understood how that event's going to impact your business, and if it's a short-term event, it might impact the numbers in the short term. Um but so, but oftentimes you you need that event to be able to get the business at a margin of safety price. So you got to yeah. understand, you know, is it a short term event? Are they going to get through it? Okay, if so, then I sh- I should be fine. So it really just comes back down to to I guess understanding. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. All right, should we do maybe one or two more? Yeah, I'll uh, I'll read this one to you. Um, hi guys, I'd first like to say I love the content you're creating here as well as your personal channel. Channel, oh, thank well, you, thank you very much. Um, I have a question regarding Phil Towns' method of investing. In his book, Rule Number One: Investing, he has a section dedicated to consulting technical indicators uh, on yes. when to buy a stock that has already reached a margin of safety value. Uh, in case you remember that part, I was wondering if you've ever looked into technical indicators, or if it's enough for you just to know that the stock is at a margin of safety price. I think mm. we've answered this question a few times. We, yeah, this this pops up from time to time, but it's mm. always good to kind of go back over it. Definitely. Uh, I think absolutely the number one thing, the thing that trumps everything else is, is margin of safety. And I mean, if you get a business, particularly in this climate, in this stock market environment where <laughs> it's at a margin of safety price, uh, I don't know about you, Hamish, but I'd be jumping at that opportunity. Oh, yeah. uh, I, I wouldn't be waiting to see stochastics, you know, ticking back up over the 20% line. I, I wouldn't be waiting for, you know, uh, MACD to be crossing up through the X, uh, yeah, up through the X axis. If I like the absolute number one thing is margin of safety. Um, that I think Phil has actually backpedaled, backpedaled, let's try that again, backpedaled slightly mm-hmm. uh, from when he first started talking about the indicators because now, and he talks about this in his second book, I think about the stockpiling method. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Where I basically it's just like, well, to hell with the technical indicators. If it goes down to margin of safety, you know, buy it. If it keeps going down, buy it more. And if it keeps (laughs) going down even more, keep buying more of it. (laughs) So I think that's kind of more of his approach now. And I think that'd probably be more of my approach. I mean, yes, they can be helpful, but they're not a hundred percent reliable. So 
I don't know, probably leave it. I mean, it's it's cool to have a look at them and to see where the big money is flowing. But in terms of my investment decisions, it's going to be more based on pr- what price I can get it at. Yeah. Yeah. In that first book, he talks a lot more about using those indicators, not only to figure out when to buy, but also when to sell. So, trading True. in and out of businesses. Um, and then, yeah, he that strategy is very different in the second book where he suggests that you probably don't even want to sell really great companies, which is much more in line with Charlie Munger bit, and Warren Buffett. Uh, that's principles. what I was going to say. Yeah. He turned a bit more Warren Buffett, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely align far more with uh, with what he talks about in the second book, which is estimate long-term future cash flows, figure out what the appropriate price to pay is, and uh, if it gets to that price, you buy it. I won't use indicators to figure out whether it's going to go further down in the short term or whether it's going to go back up. Um, I'm just happy with whatever price the market is offering me on that day. Like, what is the market offering me? Okay. I don't know what the market's going to offer me tomorrow. I can only speak to what it's offering me today. Um, And if it's good, I'll buy it. If it's not, I won't. And that's pretty much it. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. No, I agree. I agree. Um, Should we do one more? Yeah, yeah. Let's uh, let's squeeze one more in. All right, let's do let's do this one. This is a good one. Uh, Hi guys, another question. Thanks for answering my bear ETF question last week. No worries, it's a good question. Um, I always have admired how consistent you both are with your investment approaches. How do both of you stay committed to your strategies? Do you have tips for avoiding speculation, FOMO, or tunnel vision on certain stocks? And if not, did you have any poor investing decisions early on that you have learned from? Yeah, that's a really good question. Man, we could go um, on. We could oh we could yeah. talk a lot on this one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, certainly. Just to I, just to bounce off that last one. Certainly, there were some terrible decisions that I made early on that I learned from, and um, some of them worked out okay, and, and and some of them didn't. One of the very early things that I learned was through my investment in Thor Industries. I think. With that business, I think I correctly identified that it was a really good business, um, but I did not spend enough time understanding what was reasonable for its future cash flow. So the first time that I invested in the company, I think that um, I probably paid overpaid for it, and 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 that was something that I learned from rushing into a business. So. Um, I mean, tips for avoiding speculation and FOMO. I mean, I take a very long time to invest in a company, like usually six to 12 months, maybe even longer before I'm confident going into a business. And and I know that's always the case, even when I find a a business that I'm excited about. So that in a way helps me to avoid that. Um, oh man, I, I'm not sure. How do we stay committed? I mean, I just, I'm always looking at businesses. So it's something that I'm consistently doing. It's not something that I, I pick up in patches and, and put down in other patches. Yeah. So I'm sure that helps um, the, the fact that I'm just constantly looking, but um, yeah. I can't, I'm not sure actually. Do, well, do I any- think my, like one of the main mistakes early on is I was far too speculative um, mm. with the businesses that I or the stocks that I would buy, really. I was, in some cases, not even looking at the, uh, at the business. This is like very early days. And I got burnt. I got burnt so hard on so many stocks because, you know, I'd, I'd just be so speculative. So that kind of made me really switch on to the Warren Buffett way of doing things and uh, and the strategy that we both follow. Um, and I always, the thing that kind of motivates me or the way I, avoid, you know, FOMO, 
um, how I avoid speculation is going back and remembering how I would I used to buy stocks and then I would just get consistently burnt and I didn't understand why I was getting burnt because I was speculating at the time. So those experiences mm. make me go, hang on, no, you know that's how that's really how I avoid it because I just look back to then say, well, that clearly as a strategy doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> like nine times out of ten, it's going to screw you over. So just stay rational. And, you know, once you start with that Warren Buffett strategy, typically early on, you're very careful about it. So, typically, you only make really good investments and you, and you kind of find success with that strategy. So, that's even more encouragement that actually, no, this is the right way to go about investing, not following that speculation. In fact, taking your time, taking a deep breath and not worrying about the stock market, how it's bouncing up and down every day, but going back and reading through some of the annual reports and some of the financial statements and you know, looking at whether the business has a competitive advantage, looking at how the management team has, has nurtured that business over time, and then going through those valuation methods and your Excel spreadsheets and whatnot and figuring out, okay, can I buy it at a margin of safety price? That I'm 100% sure is the right way to go about investing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I know because I've tried the other way and it doesn't work. So that's kind of how I continue to to stay focused and 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 can avoid speculation and fear of missing out and whatnot. Yeah, most of the variation in different strategies that people have is to try and find a way to figure out where a, figure out where stocks are going to go up over the next six months or the next year. Yeah. That's where most of the differentiation in strategies comes. If you're looking over a 10-year period, there is zero doubt. in It's basically consensus that the stock moves with cash flow. So, yeah. if you have that long-term view, obviously, it doesn't mean that you can always accurately project what the cash flows will be over the next 10 years. But there's really no debate on that. Whereas in the short term, there's so much debate on what drives stock prices and there's so many different factors. So, um, if you can just avoid having to care about what's going to happen to the stock yeah. over the next year, then you can you can really uh, be a lot more certain in your investments. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. I agree. Always got to have that long-term horizon. Um, but I think that will just about wrap things up for today. Yeah. We've still got right. heaps of questions, but I think to be respectful of everyone's time, we, we generally like to keep these to about an hour. Um, but yeah, we've still got plenty. And, you know, if you do have a Q&A question that you'd like us to answer in next week's show, head mm -hmm. over to the YouTube version of the podcast and just drop us a comment. Uh, it could be a discussion topic, bit of news that you've seen come up or a question for Q&A, whatever you like, uh, head over to yeah, Young Investors Podcast on YouTube, drop a comment and we'll add it in for next week. But that will just about do us for today. Man, we thought we were going to have plenty of news to talk about. We actually got through news quite quickly. But yeah, to be honest, I like it because it gave us, we had so many questions that it kind of gave us a good opportunity to get through a few of them. So, yeah, thanks for everyone submitting your questions. And I think that'll just about do us for now. Um, mm. What else do we have to say? Thanks, ShareSite. Subscribe to our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> like the YouTube video. <laughs> All the good things. Check Hamish out on his YouTube channel. Check me out on my YouTube channel. Thanks, everybody. And we'll see you next week. See you guys.